Take up your Bibles and let's open them to the book of Mark once again. Mark this morning to chapter 10, and we'll begin reading in verse 17. We'll read down through verse 31. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. This is God's Word. Let us um, treat it as such as we hear it read this morning. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with, with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Pray along with me. Father, we thank you for uh, this word. We pray that you would bless now the preaching of that word. We pray that you would loose the tongue, open the mouth of your servant, and open the ears of all of us who hear, O God, as you speak to us through your word. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, let's start with this this morning. The most important question that can ever be asked is the question that we'll see this morning, but was also asked by a certain jailer in the city of Philippi to Paul and Silas when he asked them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? It's a question that Job, way back in the Old Testament, asked when he said, How can a man be in the right with God? And in our passage this morning, 
a man is essentially asking this same question, asking it of Jesus himself. And Jesus gives a rather remarkable and searching answer. These verses that we're going to be looking at this morning, and we'll just be looking at verses 17 through 21, uh, these verses are part of that larger discussion, that larger passage that we read all of this morning, which will conclude next Sunday, Lord willing, where we will look uh, also then at Jesus' comments regarding the rich and the kingdom of God and God's power to save and the benefits of being a part of the kingdom. But this morning, we'll be spending a few moments on what is normally referred to as Jesus and the rich young ruler. Jesus and his disciples, if you recall from last time and the time before, um, are over on the east side of the Jordan River now uh, in an area known as Perea. As they are making their way down, they will go to Jericho, they will uh, go to Bethany, and they will end up on that road to Jerusalem. And when we come to chapter 11, we will come to the event known as the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But Mark here records that after the events of the first part of the chapter that we've looked at in previous weeks, that the group now sets out again, Jesus and the disciples set out again, and he tells them, Mark tells us in verse 17, that as he was setting out on his journey, that a man ran up and knelt before him. Now Mark here, in in this opening to this little passage here, to, the, to him, that's all he is, is he's a man, someone, is the way the original reads, one. Uh, one person comes up to him. Now, we can add to that description, that rather minimal description, uh, down in the conclusion of the story in verse 22, uh, we are told that this man had great possessions. And Matthew, in his uh, parallel uh, recording of this passage, and all three of the synoptic gospels record this, Matthew adds that he owned much property. Some translations say he was very rich. Matthew also adds in his record of this to our description of this man, he calls him a young man in Matthew 19.20. And then Luke, he adds a little bit for us in introducing him. He calls him a certain ruler, by which he's probably referring to this man as a ruler of the synagogue. We had talked about I and mean, looked at another ruler of the synagogue early. Uh, there were these people who took, took uh, the, the lead of the synagogue at certain times, and, that is, and they were called the ruler of the synagogue, and that's probably what this man was. And so we combine all of these descriptions from the various Gospels and come up with this description that we all know so well of this man as a rich, young ruler. So a man of some influence, a man of some means, comes to Jesus. Now, before we move on too far into the story, I want to to stop and, and caution us, instruct us to approach this man fairly. This, this gentleman very often, you know, especially knowing the end of the story, he is sometimes in sermons and in Bible studies presented in a pretty negative light. But that doesn't come from the story itself as, as Mark and Matthew and Luke tell it. 
Because as we're introduced to him, what is he doing? He's seeking out Jesus, very zealously seeking out Jesus, with a particular question in mind, a a burning question which which he suspects Jesus is the one to come to to get an answer. And how right he is about that. But he comes to Jesus. Actually, Mark brings out the fact here that he ran up to Jesus, and Mark says that he knelt before him. So this man certainly has a, a high view of Jesus. He comes to Jesus with both urgency, he runs up, and with respect, he kneels before him. Now this man, as I mentioned, probably a leader in the local synagogue, he appears to be sincere, and I think we should, we should give him that. He's not going to get much else as we go through the story, so we will we'll give him that. There's no indication here that he is doing, remember we, we saw a couple weeks ago how the Pharisees came to talk to Jesus to ask him a question, and we've seen it in other places in the gospel. When they come up to Jesus, they're always seeking to what? To trap him, to somehow trap him in his words. But this man's not trying to do that. This man is genuinely coming to Jesus because there is this question in his mind, this burning question, and dispensing with with other pleasantries, beside the fact that he knelt down before him, he asks him the question there in the second half of verse 17. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a great question. We have, it's, it's essentially the same question that that Philippian jailer asked of Paul and Silas. It's essentially the same question that Job asked. What must I do to be saved is what he's asking. And that, of course, is the right question to be asking. It is the most important question. The question that every man, every woman, every child ought to ask. It ought to be the most pressing question in everyone's mind. And it's a question that if we really understood how important it was, it would never leave our mind until we had it answered. And so props to this young man, this rich young man, to A, realize the importance of the question, and secondly then to know whom to ask about it. A great question, but a question that suffers, sadly, as it is asked here, suffers from a fatal flaw, which reveals sort of the chink in the armor of this young man and of many others today, not just today, but especially today. The fatal flaw in his question is found in the second part of what he says to Jesus, and of course Jesus is going to address it, but not at first. He doesn't answer this man's question directly or immediately. He focuses rather, first of all, on how the man addresses him, but all with an eye towards where Jesus knows he's going with this conversation. In verse 18, after this man asks him his question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. 
Why do you think he said that? Was there really anything wrong with, with the, the way that this man addressed Jesus as a good teacher? Well, no, there wasn't. The young man was speaking uh, colloquially, generically, even respectfully, in the same way that we sometimes speak of people as being good people. And even if this young man, and it's unlikely that he did recognize Jesus as who he was, the Son of God, divine, even though he didn't recognize that, he assumed Jesus to be reliable and truthful and good. But Jesus, with, with divine wisdom, keys in on that address, on that part of the statement, And though he doesn't end with his address of that statement, he begins with it. He starts with the idea. He starts, Jesus does, with the the concept and the focusing of the, the conversation to the concept and the standard of what is good and who is good. Can you imagine the man coming up, running up, asking the question about eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And to have Jesus say, well, why do you call me good? You know, no one's good except God alone. Well, by saying that, Jesus is pointing this man, Jesus is pointing this man to the ultimate good, to the ultimate good giver of the law, which is where Jesus is going to go. He'll turn to that in the next verse. Remember what the man asked. And here's the fatal flaw in the question. He asked this question. He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, those two things, those two parts of that statement are inherently contradictory. As he asks them, you don't, you can't do anything to inherit something. An inheritance is by definition unearned. It is something that you you get, that you were given. And this young man, though, has fallen into the error, that's as old as time, that there is something that, that he can do to earn salvation. To to earn heaven, to inherit, as he says, eternal life. And that error says that there is something that we can do. All we need to do is figure out what it is. Maybe it's giving a certain amount of of money. Maybe it's doing certain things. Maybe it's going door to door uh, and telling people about uh, your religion. Any number of things, any unknown number of things that people have come up with as ways to earn eternal life. But Jesus is going to direct now this man's attention to the very idea of good and what is acceptable. Jesus is about to show this man the true extent of the nature of the law. And as he does so, he also makes this comment regarding the true extent and the true nature of what in fact is good. And who makes that determination? 
And there's only one that qualifies, he says, as really good. Only God is good. Jesus is saying, you, you call me good, and you're about to say that you are good. We'll see that. But the ultimate standard, the ultimate very definition of, of what is good, of who is good, is the only one who is truly good, and that is God. Now, as he says this, one thing is very clear that Jesus is not doing, and hopeless, hopefully this goes without saying, that Jesus, by this statement here, is not in any way denying his deity. Some people look at that and they say, well, there, Jesus is saying that, that God is good, and therefore, if he's the only one that's good, that Jesus himself is not good, forgetting, of course, that Jesus is God. But that's not the conversation that Jesus is having with this man. And so with the preparation that he gives by pointing him to that, that perfect standard of goodness now, Jesus then turns to the good law that this good God has given. With that preparation, he comes back now to the question that the man asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And he directs him to the good law of the good God. He says in verse 19, you know the commandments. And that's a valid assumption. This man, especially as a ruler of the synagogue, would have, but all Jews would have been familiar with the Ten Commandments. And so Jesus then lists some of them, focusing particularly on those commandments that have to do with how one relates to other people what we call the second table of the law, the last six commandments. And within those, he focuses on the ones that are, are physical in nature uh, rather than internal. He says in verse 19, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. Now, the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet, is missing. Um, to covet is to have an inordinate desire for something that belongs to someone else. He doesn't quote that, though he gives, in the context of this conversation, what is the uh, reasonable, physical sort of result of coveting. If you covet something that someone else wants, you're going to seek to find a way to get it. And one of the ways that people try to get what other people have is by defrauding them. And so that's what Jesus mentions. That's also a, a, an application of both the Eighth Commandment and the Ninth Commandment. The Eighth Commandment against stealing, the Ninth Commandment against deception. Because to defraud someone is to steal something from them through deception. And so Jesus gives that list and he puts the one commandment that's framed positively of those last six commandments, honor your father and mother, he puts that at the end. But he's saying, so you, you call me good and you ask what you must do to inherit eternal life. The only, only good one is God, who's also the giver of the commandments. You know them, here they are. And the man recognizes that, that what Jesus is saying is really what any rabbi what any Jewish teacher would have said. 
with one important difference that, that we'll see in just a moment. But Jesus is saying to this man who desires earnestly, honestly, to come into possession of eternal life. He speaks to him. This one who is seeking something that he might do. Jesus, for the sake of argument right now, says, well, here are the things that you must do to be good. He says, keep the commandments, basically. Which is true, and I've got to listen very carefully here, because one could theoretically, theoretically earn heaven by doing good works. Leviticus 18.5 and Romans 10.5 both say that the person who does the law shall live by that law, shall live by those laws. He shall gain life through his keeping of those laws. If someone keeps God's law, they would earn the merit of eternal life. So theoretically, there is a path open to heaven through the keeping of the law. Now, we have to quickly add to that before anyone signs up for that path, remember that that path requires absolute, unerring perfection in keeping that law. To get to heaven by your works, you would have to keep all of the law of God. You would have to love God perfectly in every way. And you would have to love your neighbor perfectly in every way, flawlessly, without fail, from birth until death, in every action, every word, and every thought that you did, spoke, or thought. Perfectly. Every action, every word out of your mouth, every thought in your head. Because, remember what Jesus taught over in the Sermon on the Mount because it's not only physical adultery that's a violation of God's law, but lust is just as much. It's not only physical murder, but anger towards a brother without cause. It's not only failure to love your friends that's a sin, but failure to love your enemies. And one slip, one sin... One failure failure to perfectly keep every jot and tittle of the law would be the end of it. Remember the words of James. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of the whole law. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So, yes, technically that path is available, but that path, that path only has one set of footprints on it, those of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're a fan, by the way, of that old footprints poem, it is true that the owner of those footprints has carried you has carried the rest of us, every person who believes in him. Jesus has carried them on that path, not just through hard times like that poem speaks of, but carries us into heaven, carries us through this world and in 
to a right relationship with God. And Jesus is the only one who has walked that path himself. He is the only one who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. He is the only one who lived it perfectly, and he did live perfectly. If he hadn't lived it perfectly, if he hadn't loved God perfectly and loved his neighbor perfectly, if he hadn't kept every commandment that God has given, he would not have been able to provide righteousness for you. He would have had to pay for his own sin. He couldn't have paid for yours. He's the only one who lived perfectly. And if you, brother or sister, understand God and his word and the requirements, the breadth and the depth of them, what they command, what they forbid, you will know, as Paul said, that there is no one righteous, not even one except Christ. And that's the use of the law to us, one of the uses of the law to us. It's not to show us a way to eternal life, but it's to cause us to despair of finding a way through works to eternal life. It is to cause us to despair and look outside of ourselves to someone else, to some righteousness that can be somehow made ours so that we can be acceptable to God. And so the work of the law is to push us to the gospel, which says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. And that's with sin, not just with a tough day. Come to me and I will give you rest. Because no one is righteous, not even one. And most people, if you understand God's word, would understand that. But the rich young ruler apparently did not. For he looked right back at Jesus and apparently with a straight face said in verse 20, Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. From my youth, that would be a a reference to his bar mitzvah. When a Jewish male became literally a son of the commandment. That's what bar mitzvah means. And at which time he, as a young man, would have assumed the yoke of the law. He, from that point on, was held responsible for keeping the law in the Jewish society. And this man said, from that time on, Jesus, I've done it. Now, this could only be said by someone who had either unbelievable hubris and a heretically high opinion of himself, or, as is more likely the case, someone who had a substandard understanding of what it means to actually keep God's law. And there there were others who did, who thought that they were doing pretty good. One named Saul, his name was changed to Paul, he thought that before his conversion that he had done a pretty good job. Remember Paul said that he was as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And this man here before Jesus had a similar opinion of himself. Or does he? 
If so, then, then why is he here asking Jesus, what else do I need to do? Is there something outside of the commandments that he expects Jesus to, to point him towards? I, I think his original question here betrays a knowledge that he's not even willing to admit about himself, reveals a nagging thought in this man's mind that maybe he's not quite as good as he thinks he is in these areas. A nagging thought that Paul says that God puts in each one of us, which tells us that we're not as good as we might think. Our conscience either accusing us or excusing us before God. But that's not really in the front of this man's mind. And he reports to Jesus, yes, I do know those commandments, and yes, all of these I have kept from my youth. What else? What do I lack? What must I do? And Mark says that when the man says that, that Jesus looked at him. Now, of course, Jesus knows everything about this man through and through. But, and here again, we see the nature of Christ. We see the mercy and the compassion of God. Mark tells us here that Jesus' attitude towards this man this man who is so blind concerning God's law and his keeping of it, his attitude towards this man is not cynicism. He doesn't despise him for his obvious self-deception. He's not filled with disgust towards this man because of his low view of what is necessary to gain eternal life. But Mark says, look at it there in verse 21, he says, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. He looked at him, and the word that's used there signifies an intense and a searching look. He looked into him, we might say. And it says, and looking at him, he loved him. Jesus loved him. He had compassion on him. He pitied him in this state, in this delusion. He loved this man. This man was, was not here to trick him. He wasn't here to test Jesus. He was here to find out what he needed to do to gain eternal life. Jesus knew of his sincerity, and he loved him. But at the same time, he knew the man's heart. He knew the man's sin. He knew the man's error. He knew the man's weaknesses, and he knew right where he needed to push to reveal this man's true problem. Jesus knew that this man was trusting in the wrong things. He was trusting in his, his level of performance, or rather in his perceived level of performance of God's law to make him right with God. He had something else that he was trusting in. And in doing that, he was breaking the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. The man needed this deception to be revealed to him. He needed his eyes to be opened. And again, he came to the right place. Jesus knew the point where this man did not keep these things. He knew the point of this man's greatest illusion about himself. He knew the chink in this man's armor of self-righteousness. That this man loved served, 
worshipped money. And so Jesus presses there. You know how a doctor just seems to know where to push to make it hurt? Does it hurt when I press there? Of course it hurts. Well, that's what Jesus does. Jesus presses there. Jesus said to him, look at verse 21. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. How gracious that is of Jesus. You lack one thing. Ah, I wish God's word revealed that I only lacked one thing. I would be happy to learn that there's one thing that I don't lack in. But Jesus, the great physician, knows this man's problem. You lack one thing, he says. You can almost sense the man's ears perk up. Ah, I'm finally going to get my answer. Here it comes. What vow must I make? What, what alm must I give? What deed must I perform? And Jesus tells him. Jesus says, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Now, was Jesus saying that in order for this man to be saved, that he had to just go and sell all of his possessions and give the proceeds to the poor, and that if he did that, he'd be saved? Well, no, he's not saying that. Was he saying that the only thing that this man lacked was that? Was he really that close to the kingdom through his works? No. But Jesus calls him out on the one thing that his heart clung to most dearly. Jesus presses right on the spot that revealed the disease of his heart, that revealed the true source or the true object of his worship. In fact, as Jesus reveals the man's problem, it's not really what he lacked, but his problem was in what he had. Or to be even more accurate, what had him. That was, as with so many, it was his stuff. His stuff. Your problem, young man, is that you are a rich, young ruler. You have youth. You have material wealth. You have power. And even those things are not in and of themselves bad things, but this man needed to submit those things to God, to follow God, to follow Christ. Be sure, Jesus is not saying to this man that this was the one more deed, the one more good work that this man needed to do, and after that he would have earned his way to God, would have earned his way to eternal life. He is saying to him, as he says to each of us today, let go of the things that hold you now, count the cost of becoming a disciple of mine, and become a disciple of mine. He's saying the same thing to this man, in fact says it in as many words, that he had said to Philip in John 1.43, that he had said to Peter and James and John in Mark 1.17, and that he had said to Matthew in Mark 2.14. He's saying, follow me. It is only as this man would do that, trusting in this one before him, 
to to stop looking for the one thing that he still must do and look to the one that he must follow and follow. Only then would he be able to express the self-sacrificing devotion to Christ which follows Christ and would, if required, be willing to sell all that you have and give to the poor. It is, the only one, it is only the one who trusts Christ who will follow Christ, and it is only the one who follows Christ who will manifest the self-surrender that demonstrates the possession of that eternal life. The great need of the rich young ruler and the great need of everyone, whether they're rich or poor or young or old, or a ruler, or a slave. The great need of all of them, all of us, is found in following Christ and heeding the call to follow Christ. And Jesus says that that resulting willingness to give up everything for others, to sell all that you have, to give all to the poor, the result of being in that place is that you will have more than you could ever imagine because, he says, you will have treasure in heaven then. That treasure will never rust, nor fade. It's that treasure that is laid up where moths and rust do not destroy and where thieves will not break in and steal. The answer to this young man's original question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The answer is nothing. Because the doing has already been done by another. By the only one who is truly good. By the one who did keep the commandments from his youth. What is left for you to do, rich young ruler, what is left for you to do, non-Christian hearing me today, is receive it by faith. What a simple thing, and what a precious gift. But this story, sad to say, does not have a happy ending. Jesus has here, with divine wisdom, gotten directly to this young man's stumbling block when it came to the gospel, that he was following riches, and would not therefore follow Christ. This young man, so close to the eternal life that he sought, I mean, the giver of that life literally staring him in the face. And the young man turns away. He could not enter the kingdom of God on this day because he would not enter the kingdom of God. Because he thought there was one more thing, one more rung on the ladder, one more stair on the staircase that he had to, by his effort, climb. And he, at least as of the conclusion of this story, did not inherit eternal life because he had other priorities. He had higher priorities. Jesus elsewhere stated this man's problem perfectly when in Matthew 6.24 he said, no one can serve 
two masters. He said, you cannot serve God and money. And this rich young ruler is put in the place of having to make that decision here. And sadly, we read the choice he made. It says, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. And why? For he had great possessions. Or perhaps we might say, because great possessions had him. Had his loyalty. He had great possessions. Did he, though? He thought he did. He had great worldly possessions, but he had refused the pearl of great price. And he walked away. Another statement of Jesus sort of comes hauntingly to mind this morning when Jesus asked, For what will it profit a man if he gain the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Beloved, I pray that the result here with this young man is not repeated by anyone here. Anyone sitting here? Anyone hearing my voice? The gift of eternal life is offered. Offered to you this morning by Christ. It only remains for you to humble yourself before God, to place your trust in Christ, to give your life to Him, and by doing so, receive that life. If you try to gain eternal life, if you try to gain heaven by looking for something that you must do, you're missing the point of the gospel. As I said earlier, the doing has been done. That's why Jesus came, to do what needed to be done. To walk that path. To climb that ladder. He did that. And eternal life is now offered to you freely if you will look outside of yourself and your own doing and call upon the name of Christ. I pray that you do that. And to that, let us say, Amen. Our Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for the fact that Christ has done all that needs to be done. That we cannot, we must not, Lord, look to what we must achieve, what we must do. For you call, you call us to simply believe, to trust, to rest in your Son. I pray, Father, that if there are any hearing my voice this morning who have not trusted and rested in Christ, that they would do so. That whatever holds them back, Lord, I pray that your Spirit would work in them and bring them to yourself that they might trust in you and thereby have eternal life. I ask this, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.